This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London dedicated to improving research and supporting families because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Welcome to episode 97, recorded on June 2nd, 2022. I'm your host, Brenda Weigel, from the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Today on TWIPO, we have an amazing guest, Dr. Ravi Maser, who I am delighted to have the opportunity to spend some time talking about his work uh, and, and learning more from him. Dr. Mazer began his career with a degree in computer science from Columbia University in New York. And a very fun fact that I learned by reviewing his CV is that he then spent a year in Galway, Ireland at the National University of Ireland receiving a diploma in health promotion. He went on to medical school at Harvard, followed by a pediatric residency at Columbia Presbyterian Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital. Then he went on to a fellowship in pediatric hematology oncology at the National Cancer Institute and Johns Hopkins Hospital, where he joined the lab of Dr. Crystal Maple that truly set the trajectory for his career. He completed his fellowship in 2016 and joined the faculty at Stanford University. He is currently an assistant professor in the division of pediatric hematology, oncology, stem cell transplantation and regenerative medicine. He has focused his work on developing novel targeted cellular therapies for pediatric cancers. He has won several awards for his work, including recently receiving the NIH director's new innovator award. Congratulations. His work is published in prestigious journals such as Cell and Nature. Today, we are going to focus our conversation on his recently published work in developing GD2 targeted T cell therapy for gliomas that was published in Nature and recently presented at the American Association of Cancer Research meeting this spring. Welcome, Robbie. It is a pleasure to have you here. And, and I am so excited by your work. And I know there's been tremendous excitement in the field about this study and clinical trial. I'm wondering if you can describe for us um, just the process of how you identified that GD2 was a target associated for um, gliomas and, and, and DIPG and how the trial came to be. How did you, how did you take the steps to, uh, if you can briefly describe the trial? Sure, yeah. So um, thrilled to be here. Thank you for the kind intro, Brenda. Um, the, the story is really uh, one of kind of, uh, you know, uh, prepared happenstance. So, so, so that, something that, that, that was, was a little bit of luck and then a lot of scientific preparation. Um, you know, it was, it was Michelle Manji's lab. It was a grad student named Chris Mount, who's now a uh, pathology resident in, in Boston, who um, had uh, discovered initially that GD2 was highly expressed on DIPG. And it was interesting how they did it. You know, Chris joined uh, Michelle's lab a few years after she started the lab. And Michelle had made really some of the first cell line models of this disease because getting tissue from, from pontine tumors was so difficult. She, she really set up uh, a method to, to uh, get these post-autopsy from, from families that had donated uh, tissue. 
And so um, they just ask the simple question is, oh, what's on the target of, of these cancer cells? And it's not something that people haven't thought about before. And there were kind of transcriptomic analyses that were done, but they just took a, a kind of different and very simple approach, which is they used this kind of 250 antibody panel for known immunotherapeutic targets uh, and just subjected several of their, their cell cultures to this panel and uh, found that on all, on all the cultures, across the cultures, the highest expressed target was this target that is just really well known to pediatric oncologists, GD2. And I always say, you know, the only reason that antibody was in that panel was because GD2 was developed for neuroblastoma. So it was really, uh, you know, it, you know, credit to, to all the work put in both from, from Sloan Kettering and then from Children's Oncology Group in developing um, anti-GD2 antibodies because because those were actually known immunotherapy targets, this really probably ended up on that panel. So they found that GD2 was highly expressed. That was around the time that Crystal Makel, my former mentor, had moved uh, from, from the NIH to Stanford. Uh, I think Michelle approached Crystal and I, I, was, I, I came out and joined, you know, continued my, my postdoc work in Crystal's lab. And uh, we just put together a collaboration where we would test the GD2 CAR T cells that we already had and were planning to bring to the clinic but tested them in these preclinical models of uh, DIPG. Um, you know, the, we kind of did the first in vivo experiment and uh, it worked really, really well. And Michelle's lab was just thrilled. They were like, oh my God, it got rid of all the tumors. And for us, you know, we mostly did a lot of CAR T cells and leukemia models. We're like, oh yeah, when CARs work, that's like what they do in these preclinical models. They completely cleared the tumor. Um, but, you know, we started looking, why might this be? And one thing that we noticed was when we kind of ran flow on these uh, cell lines and compared them to other cancers that are known to express GD2, like neuroblastoma, was that the expression of GD2, this known target for pediatric oncology, was about 10 times higher on uh, DIPG than even on neuroblastoma, where it was a validated target. So we kind of started to understand that that's part of what was driving the efficacy here. That's fantastic. And it really points to, you know, the real importance of collaboration and a little bit of serendipity yep. and, and, and being sort of in the right environment to move those things forward. So that's amazing. Exactly. How did you then say, okay, in moving from sort of that preclinical model saying, yeah, I think this is going to work. How did you then structure the clinical trial to model what you thought would be an optimal strategy in the brain tumor setting? And what are some of the unique things about moving CAR T cells into the brain tumor space? Sure. So, um, you know, here, I think we also benefited from, from some of the history in, in pediatric oncology. The first CAR T cell ever put in a child was a GD2 CAR. Uh, work done at Texas Children from Malcolm Brenner's group, Arnie Poulet, um, and, and others, um, you know, designed a first-generation car that they tested in neuroblastoma. So um, on that background, they actually saw some efficacy, including complete responses in some patients. And on that background, um, there, there, there was a lot of work saying, okay, how can we follow up on this? And how can we make, uh, you know, make more potent cars for, for, for neuroblastoma? And so, and, and also osteosarcoma where GD2 is also expressed. So when um, we made the discovery that the, along with Dr. Manji's lab, that the GD2 CAR T cells were active in DIPG, we were already planning a CAR T cell trial for a new GD, this GD2 CAR in osteosarcoma and neuroblastoma. So um, a lot of the, 
you know, pain of, of starting a clinical trial for CAR T cells comes around getting virus to make the CAR T cells. And we had already done that, uh, or we're already doing that. So again, more about the ser more of the, the serendipity or just being right place at right time, good collaborations, and then really building the work, building on the work on others. Um, and the there had been other work with CAR T cells and brain tumors but no one really working with uh, brainstem gliomas. So lots of work with uh, glioblastoma but from the City of Hope group. Gaylor, also in Meds group, had, had done work with, with pediatric TBM. Um, and, and, and others around were starting to do that work, but hadn't really looked at putting CAR T cells into the ponds, which is obviously, or to treat a disease that's in the ponds, which is obviously a much more preca precarious neuroanatomic um, location. So here, you know, we did the best we could to plan with what our preclinical model showed. So we saw in mice some toxicity that had to do with the location of the tumor, that you would have kind of on-tumor inflammation and the mice would get sick because of, of hydrocephalus and increased pressure. Um, and, and some of the mice even died in our preclinical models. So we designed a clinical trial around that. We knew that we wanted an Omaya catheter in every patient. So that's a catheter that allows us to directly access the ventricles that hold the spinal or the cerebrospinal fluid in the CNS so that we could remove that fluid if we were seeing pressure that was too high. Um, and actually making that decision um, really made it, if you read the paper, it actually made it possible to carry out the trial because we had patients develop hydrocephalus and we hadn't been able to quickly remove fluid, uh, we would have gotten into a lot of trouble. Um, it also, you know, taught us to be cautious. The first patients, I mean, really all the patients that we treat are treated in the hospital, but the first patients were treated in the ICU. We now understand when patients are more or less likely to get into trouble. And we work very closely with our neuro ICU here at Stanford. And then, you know, finally, Stanford has this slightly different design for neuro-oncologists here than most other centers, although not all other centers, that uh, everyone is, is neurology trained, um, which, you know, coming from a center that didn't do that, the most people had come up through Pizank. When I first got it, I was like, oh, that's strange and different. But uh, actually, it's, it's been hugely beneficial just because of the amount of neuro ICU training that most of our neurologists, have, uh, pediatric neuro-oncologists have had, has really helped. Uh, and we've learned, you know, as pediatric oncologists, we've learned a whole lot from them also. Yeah, and I was fascinated um, as well, because I think the the toxicity, I mean, this was really a study to, to learn toxicity as well as dosing, as well as sort of signals of, of response. And can you describe a little bit more, because it is kind of scary, some of the, the toxicities and, and you see, you kind of have defined kind of a intracranial toxicity as well as a systemic toxicity from the work that you've done. Can you describe a little bit the differences in the timing and what you're seeing in relation to the, administ the intracranial administration of the CAR-Ts? Sure. So, you know, with intravenously administered CAR T cells, the first toxicity we saw was kind of exactly like what we expected with intravenously administered CAR T cells for, the, for hematologic malignancies for leukemia and lymphoma, um, in that patients develop cytokine release syndrome. So the cells start making cytokines, activate other parts of the immune system, basically get a, a picture that a patient looks like they're having an infection, maybe with high fevers, potentially low blood pressure, et cetera. And uh, we were already pretty comfortable managing that. Um, which most of the time we lean on anti-cytokine agents and then fluid resuscitation, sometimes me uh, uh, medicines to support the blood pressure. But all of a sudden we were managing cytokine release syndrome 
at the same time that we were also managing pressure in the CNS. And then you start thinking about giving these patients these patients fluid and you have to balance both their, their needs kind of systemically for fluid and supporting their blood pressure. At the same time that you also need to make sure you don't give too much fluid because you could actually drive increased pressure in the brain. And that became a whole other, you know, it really changed the way we started looking at things. Uh, so we were giving anti-cytokine agents earlier rather than giving just tocilizumab, which, you know, neutralizes IL-6, we also started leaning on, on um, anakinra, which neutralizes IL-1, which is just another player in this, um, in this kind of cytokine release syndrome, um, what drives cytokine release syndrome, but this one actually can enter the spinal fluid, you know, it can enter the, cross the blood-brain barrier because it's, it's a smaller uh, protein than, than an antibody like tocilizumab. Uh, so that changed. And then we started, you know, when we were having to give, we got to a point where we were having to give um, lots of fluid. We said, okay, actually we need to lean on giving steroids earlier so that we could avoid having to give mm. lots of fluid. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the type of toxicity within the CNS, so with, there, we saw something very different than what we've seen with leukemia and lymphoma. Even those patients with leukemia and lymphoma that have CNS disease, we've seen something very different. So most of the time, uh, you know, patients develop what's called ICANs or it used to be called neurotoxicity, but neurotoxicity that's thought to be uh, related to cytokines that are released when CAR T cells kind of overactivate in patients with leukemia and lymphoma. Um, and we didn't, haven't seen much of that, but most of what we've seen with, with neurotoxicity in, this, in the CNS has been around the activation of T cells and the causing of inflammation in a very small contained kind of very important neuroanatomic location. So driving swelling in the brainstem, you know, that can alter the, the activity of the neurons that are controlling your breathing, your cranial nerves, et cetera. Um, but also it could block the passage of spinal fluid um, and actually cause this, this syndrome known as hydrocephalus, where you have high pressures in the brain and that because you can't drain your spinal fluid, and this could actually cause herniation, which is you know, a potentially fatal um, incident mm -hmm. where the, the, the fluid shifts cause the brain actually to, to shift through the through different uh, areas of the, of the skull. So um, this became something that we had to become really adept at managing. And luckily we were working so closely with our, our ICU colleagues and, and our neuro ICU trained neurologists uh, that we're, we've been able to really develop mechanisms uh, and sorry, and our neurosurgeons, we've been able to develop mechanisms uh, to control this. Um, but most of those mechanisms are actually, they're, they're kind of, um, they're really anatomic mechanisms. They're about draining the fluid um, as opposed to necessarily kind of tamping down on cytokines or tamping down on the cell activity. That's not to say we don't use um, steroids when we need to in these situations, but really a lot of it is about measuring the, the pressure caused by these cells. Mm -hmm. we, we've, we've termed this tumor inflammation associated neurotoxicity. Um, and there's kind of two, two flavors of that. There's the flavor where, okay, the tumor sits at a, a place that maybe controls facial sensation. And so when you give the cells and you have inflammation, the symptom might get worse. So the patient loses even more sensation, or let's say can't open his or her mouth as much during that kind of period of peak inflammation. But that's not really a life-threatening condition. It's something that's temporarily uncomfortable. And we had to learn to become comfortable with those types of changes that were temporary and reversible, but also distinguish them from times where, while well, the tumor is sitting in an area that's controlling respiration, breathing, or, or um, uh, you know, cardio any cardiorespiratory function, 
or the tumor sitting in a place that actually it's causing blockage of the CSF and becoming adept at understanding what type of TN or on tumor inflammation we were seeing was something that we really learned as we've treated these kind of early patients. Yeah, on that balance is that's a response you want to see because you're getting that inflammatory response at the site of the tumor. So balancing that and not using medications that dampen down that immune response, which is what you're trying to generate, is a very fine balance. And I'm fascinated, Ravi, you did, as part of the study, um, an awful lot of measures to understand what that immune response was by looking at different factors in the blood or different factors in the, the cerebral spinal fluid. Can you talk a little bit about what you think the most important findings of of those what you know signals of immune response are and how that maybe connects with um, your understanding of who might respond best to this type of therapy. Sure. Um, so first I should say that there's only four patients in that trial and we really only have deep correlatives on, on kind of two or three of those patients. So it's really hard to kind of make broad statements. And of course we're still doing a dose escalation and altering the way we give the cell. So I think you know, some of these uh, conclusions should change. And then I should also say that the correlative work was led by my co-first author, Sneha Ramakrishna, who's an instructor here at Stanford and has kind of made a, her um, focus really correlative studies to take from our early phase trials and learn and kind of redesign our approaches and our colleagues around those. Um, so, you know, I, I think, first of all, when you look in the periphery, when we give patients IV CAR T cells, um, the cytokines look pretty similar to when we give IV CAR T cells for leukemia and lymphoma. Um, and that's kind of interesting. I mean, of course, it's just T cells activating, so you would expect to get kind of the same uh, responses. But it's interesting when you compare it to patients or, or times that the patients got uh, CAR T cells only put directly into the OMIA catheter. So um, to, to explain on this study, uh, the four patients that were treated got an initial dose uh, intravenously, and then they got follow-up doses put directly into the Omaya catheter. And that was based on data that has come out from City of Hope and now other places as well, showing that that approach may be more effective than giving them IV that you can put them directly into the CNS. Um, and when we gave cells in the, uh, through the, directly into the, into the spinal fluid, we found higher levels of cytokines in the CSF. So that's great because it tells us we're having more activation where we wanted. And we were finding no really elevation of cytokines peripherally, very, very rarely that we saw patient cytokines went up peripherally. Um, and it's interesting to think why you give them IV, they travel to the brain, they're doing their job in the brain. Why are they making cytokines outside of the brain? Like, do they like go back to where they came from? So we don't, we don't fully understand that. But we do know that, um, and we've pre we presented this, as you mentioned, at ACR on our second dose level, which is not published, it was not published yet, but has been presented, is that we've had patients develop even more severe, as we gave more cells, even more severe cytokine release syndrome. So we were seeing really high-grade uh, cytokine release syndrome, kind of reminiscent of what we used to see with CD19 color when we kind of were first learning to take care of those patients. Um, and then we would treat the same patient, you know, a month later, 
ICV and they would have a great response. That means directly into the myocather, they would have a great response to the CAR T cells and have none of those problems with the peripheral inflammation. So I think the early cytokines that we saw and now our follow-up experience in these patients has told us that the better approach may be to go directly into the, into the spinal fluid because you avoid this kind of unwanted kind of peripheral inflammation uh, that actually was really hard for us to manage, especially with patients we couldn't give a lot of fluid to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's that's probably you know the most directly relevant thing and has already changed how we're approaching the trial. So now we've opened a new arm on the trial where patients are only receiving um, ICV uh, administered CAR T cells. Mm-hmm. The other another major thing uh, we did was was run single cell RNA seq uh, on the immune cells that we were finding in the spinal fluid from patients at specific time points. And this is, you know, really, really early data because we really ultimately can only compare between one or two patients or between patients, you know, the same patient at different time points, or maybe when that patient got IV versus ICV CAR T cells. But it's clear that other immune cells are becoming activated. And those other immune cells tend to be these myeloid cells. So macrophages, microglia, we're not exactly sure if they start in the brain or they start peripherally and then come into the spinal fluid, but they're definitely getting activated. And generally, these are thought to have a really immunosuppressive quality to them. So, you know, as we progress and we find kind of the most, uh, the, the safest dose route and schedule to give our CAR T cells as we currently do, we're going to start thinking about ways maybe to deplete or disable those macrophages and other myeloid cells going forward to see if we can enhance CAR T cells, uh, the the GD2 CAR T cells. And this is in line with what other people are seeing in other solid tumor studies. Um, So, you know, we think there's there's some rationale there, but we have to wait and see and get more numbers and and more uh, sequencing back on the next patients to really say. Robbie, that's a great segue into uh, sort of Uh, We're coming close to sort of the end of our wonderful conversation, and you've hinted at some of the key potential next steps or what you think are are sort of the real um, concrete learnings. You mentioned administration directly into the the cerebrospinal fluid and, and learning to maybe we need to use strategies to remove suppressive effects of immune cells. Um, what are you envisioning as next steps other than just completing this study? What, where do you think, where do you think this is going? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think there's, there's a few different things we're doing. Number one is, you know, yeah, we want to complete the study, but we keep changing the study, right? We opened a new arm only with ICV and with, with several dose escalations there, because we feel like every few patients we treat, we learn something about the better way to do this. So, um, you know, almost all the patients got uh, subsequent ICB infusions. But what we realized after the first few was we shouldn't wait too long from infusion to infusion. So, you know, we were trying to balance that this could be the last months or year of the patient's life with how often they need to be coming to Palo Alto, staying in the hospital for long periods and potential toxicity. So we were usually saying, okay, with the first couple of patients, they got some benefit from the, the therapy. Let's see if it continues to develop or let's see, you know, come back when every three months or so. Uh, we've now changed that. And we realized that we need to treat patients because of the pace of this disease every kind of four to six weeks. So we've already changed both that we're giving them uh, locally into the CNS, but also giving them much more frequently. Um, so I, we hope that we, from treating these next patients, we learn more also about the best way to give this. So we keep saying it's, it's the dose, the route, and the schedule, and we really need to figure out what that is. Um, you know, 
we are we have been really taken aback with how uh how, how that we've seen any activity but that we've actually seen patients with you know real both clinical and radiographic improvements um and we know that stanford cannot treat all of the patients that have this disease you know both it, regionally or in the country or, you know, really worldwide. So we hope on one end that once we kind of define the ideal dose treatment schedule, that there will be a partner that will be able to be able to make this more broadly available, whether that happens through an academic consortium or through drug development, we're not exactly sure. Um, you know, meanwhile, in my lab, I, I, we work a lot on, on engineering uh, new T cells, and we've made new GD2 car receptors that work much better in preclinical models. So we're excited to eventually also get to bring those to the clinic. Um, but we're trying to kind of pursue dual tracks with really make this available to children as we have now, but then keep iterating on it in order to, to make it even more effective so it helps even more children. Robbie, I look forward to those next steps and the excitement that your work is generating in the field and the amazing steps that you are making in bringing these therapies to children with very aggressive cancers, especially DIPG and midline gliomas. This is phenomenal work and it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and to learn more. And I thank you not only for your time today, but for all you're doing to advance the field. Thank you, Brenda. We appreciate it. Looks like that's it for this week. Thank you again, Dr. Ravi Maisner. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, Keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsonkdoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu and find all TWIPO episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.